Thanks for checking out this week's podcast from Center Street Church. We pray it blesses, encourages, and inspires you. The other evening we crossed paths with this woman. She was journeying alone on a particularly rough stretch of road heading in the same direction as we were, to the king's banquet. The sun was setting, and she appeared fatigued and in need of company, so we suggested that she join us for the remainder of her journey. You could instantly detect her hesitance. She was probably the type used to going it alone. I smiled. She was just like I was, oh, so many years ago. So I sat down beside her and began to share my story. I had also received the king's invitation. I immediately hit the road on fire for his kingdom. The only thing is, I was traveling solo. Eventually the journey got wearisome. The trail was rough and rugged. There were hills to climb and bandits to avoid. As time passed, I became discouraged. The passion that once exuded from me was no longer there. I was considering turning back. That was when I came across a group of travelers. There was something unique about them. They had come from all different walks of life and backgrounds. Still, they were like a family, a community supporting and encouraging each other in the good times and the bad. Most of all, they shared a deep love for the king. Suddenly, my eyes opened. I realized that this journey was not meant to be traveled alone. And so, I have been walking with them ever since. While the road can still be rough and tiresome, it is much better having a community to support and encourage me along the way. I guess my story resonated with our traveler because she has decided to end her solo journey and join our community. Well, I as well want to welcome you to our central campus here this morning. And welcome to those of you worshiping online with us. We're so glad that you have joined us this morning. Well, quite a number of years ago, a professor of mine named Bill Muller tells a story of how he was walking with his grandson one day. You have to imagine, Bill is about 6'4", 6'5", feet tall, very tall, and his grandson was very short, right? So they were walking together, and Bill looks down at his grandson, and his little grandson is trying so hard to keep up with Bill's wide, long footsteps, right, as they're walking along together and his little grandson is trying to match Bill's arm swings as they walk and Bill thought this was funny and and cute, right, and looked down at him and after a little while just said, so what are you doing? And his grandson looks up at him and says, well, Grandpa, I want to be exactly like you when I grow up. 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 21 says this, Jesus left us an example that we should follow in his steps. That we should follow in his steps. You see, through this whole summer series that we've been in, we've been exploring this grand invitation from Jesus to all of us to come follow him. To come follow in his steps. To imitate his way of life. To learn from him and live like he did as we strive to live as followers of him, right? As disciples of him. And so this morning, I want us to explore this invitation from Jesus to live in community with others. You see, when God made us, 
He made us in his image, in his likeness. He made us personal. He made us relational. And so every human being has this need for a relationship with God and a relationship with other people around them. This simple truth is foundational to our way of life in this world. This simple truth was foundational to the way that Jesus lived his life. We're all created and we're all called to live in communion with God. We're all created, we're all called to live in community with others. Even a quick read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John through the Gospels, you'll see that Jesus lived his life in communion with God and community with others. Jesus formed his tribe, he formed his team, he formed his community group. Call it whatever you'd like. In this sermon, I'm gonna call it his spiritual family. Jesus formed a spiritual family. And a family that was committed to communicate and live out the gospel message. And really, that family began something that has changed this world dramatically. So I want us to begin this morning right, with looking at how did Jesus actually go about forming this community, this spiritual family? How did Jesus actually do it? We're going to look at that. And then we're going to explore very briefly why Jesus chose to live his life in community. Why did Jesus live in a spiritual family? What was the outcome? What was the purpose? What was his agenda for living his life this way? So we're, we're going to look at how Jesus formed a community and then why. So turn in your Bibles to John chapter 1. We're going to spend our time there, John chapter 1, and also in Luke chapter 4, right? But John chapter 1, this is what we see. John the Baptist is on the scene here. He's baptizing people. He's preaching and teaching along the Jordan River. Right? And people are asking him, John, are you the Messiah? Are you the Christ? Are you the one to come? Jesus said, no, I'm not. I'm, I'm just preparing the way. The Messiah is still to come. So John was preaching and teaching there. Jesus comes onto the scene in verse 29 of John chapter 1. John the Baptist just sees Jesus passing by. And we don't know much of what took, take, uh, took place in Jesus' life from the time that he was about seven or eight years old to when he was about 30. We just don't know what, what happens in Jesus' life during that time frame. But right now, Jesus is about 30 years old. He's in the same vicinity here as John the Baptist was. And in verse 35, right of John chapter 35, we read this. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. So the picture here is John the Baptist. He's got two of his disciples with him. John sees Jesus and says, look, the Lamb of God. And in this incredibly profound and prophetic way, John the Baptist is just looking down the road three years to what will happen to Jesus on the cross with him being crucified, him being sacrificed as a lamb for the forgiveness of our sins. John speaks that out loud, which is pretty incredible. And two of John's disciples hear John say this, and they see Jesus walking by, and they leave John, and they follow Jesus. So these two disciples are following after Jesus. They're maybe walking behind him, and Jesus looks and sees them and says, turns around all of a sudden and says, well, what do you guys want? And they say, well, where are you staying? And John, or Jesus says, well, come, come and you'll see where I'm staying. And Jesus spends the whole afternoon, the rest of that day, with these two disciples. Now, what's going on here? 
See, what's going on is Jesus is beginning to enact his strategy that will end up spreading the gospel through the entire world. And Jesus' starting point is he's looking for friends. He's looking for friends. And these two guys that Jesus just saw could be his friends. They look like friendly people, and so Jesus tests them out and invites them to come with him, hang out with him for the whole afternoon, and spend some time with him. One of these disciples is Andrew, who is Simon Peter's uh, brother. The other disciple here, most likely, is John. Not John the Baptist, but John who wrote the book of John. John doesn't mention his name at all in the book of John. as sort of a, a way to be humble. But if you know and if you read the gospel of John, you know that John doesn't shy away from saying, hey, Jesus loved me the best out of all of the disciples. So it's a backhanded humility, kind of. But, but Andrew and John are these two guys. Now what happens next is Andrew goes to get his brother, Simon Peter, brings him to meet Jesus. The next day, Jesus sees Philip and says to Philip, hey, Philip, Come follow me. Philip follows him, and then Philip goes to get his, his uh, friend Nathaniel. And when you add up all of these guys, you've got five guys that seem to be friends with Jesus. Five guys that maybe went on to start a burger chain or something like that. But five guys, right? That's what Jesus found. They were friendly, friends. And they weren't from, these five guys were not from this area where, where John and Jesus were spending time. They were from Capernaum. So they had traveled some distance to be in this area, but their home was Capernaum. That's important. But Jesus is looking for friends as he starts to form this spiritual family. Now, how would you define friendship? Let's talk about friendship for a few minutes. How would you define friendship? If I were to, to narrow down all the complexities of friendship down to a few short statements, it would be this. Friends are people who genuinely like you. They genuinely like you. They accept you for who you are with all of your weirdness and all of your quirks and all of your uniquenesses and all of your strengths and abilities. Friends genuinely will like you. Friends will have a deep um, acceptance of who you are, who God has created you to be. And in friendships, they'll they'll create a, a deep safety net for you to be who you are. So friends genuinely will like you. Friends are people that are going to be, want to be around you. They're going to want to celebrate the things that you are celebrating, milestones in your life, graduations, birthdays, marriages, funerals. They're going to want to hang around you and be with you and spend time with you. Those are friends. They like you. They want to be around you. And friends will want to serve you. If you have someone in your life that says, hey, I wanna, do you want to borrow this for a while? Or I see that you need this. You want to you, you have this for a little bit? Your radar should go up because that's what friends do. Friends want to serve you. They want to loan you stuff. They want to give you stuff. They want to buy you stuff. They want to they serve you. They want to look out for your interests before their own. They'll put your interests before theirs. And in friendships, there's this natural understanding of give and take and give and take. This is what Jesus was looking for, Friends people who liked him, who wanted to be around him, and who wanted to serve him. This is what Jesus was looking for. And Jesus very carefully and very prayerfully, in a very particular way, singled out these five guys and says, I think these guys could be friends. The reality is many people struggle with friendship. 
Perhaps even if all of us in this room were honest, we all struggle with friendships. Investing into friendships, deepening the friendships that we have, spending time with the friends we have. Life just seems to be so busy, so hectic, so chaotic at times. And we find it a hard time to make our friends a priority in our life and deepen these relationships. But here's the thing. Friendships are the context for discipleship. You can't disciple someone or you won't be discipled by someone who isn't a friend. Friendship is the context for discipleship. And the friendships that you have will have immeasurable influence and impact in your life. Choose your friends wisely. Invest into friendships intentionally. Spend time deepening the relationships that you have and move your friendships and your, towards Christ. See them as discipling relationships. Proverbs 12 verse 26 says this. The righteous choose their friends carefully. The righteous choose their friends carefully. But the way of the wicked leads them astray. Friendships are important. That's where Jesus started. Finding friends. Friendships have incredible influence in our lives. About nine days ago, I received the news that a a friend of mine died suddenly. He had profound impact on many people's lives. Many people's lives including mine. I met him first in 1997 when I was in seminary. He was a professor of mine. We developed a friendship. I asked him to mentor me, and we got into a mentoring relationship. And over the past 19 years, we've been friends, and our friendship has deepened. And um, One author says it this way, that when God gives us a gift, when God gives us a gift, he usually wraps it in a person. And Randy was a gift to me from God. Had a great impact in my life. He was like a spiritual father to me. He had a way of listening and encouraging and noticing me and what God was doing in my life. And and he invested into me. He discipled me. He discipled me. And I'm so much more mature in my relationship with Christ, having him a part of my life, than I would have if he was not a part of my life. I'll miss the conversations, the email exchanges that we had. But in his passing, he left me this challenge. He didn't speak this challenge to me. But as I reflected on our relationship, he's left me with this challenge. That I ought to be to others what Randy was to me. Right, A disciple maker, a mentor, someone who invests in friendships. See, here's the thing. Friendships are the context for discipleship. Discipleship happens in friendships. Jesus, he was looking for friends. Although he was looking for friends, he wasn't only looking for friends. He was looking for family. Friends who could be a part of his spiritual family. In John chapter 1, verse 43, we read here that Jesus suddenly decides he's going to head back to to, uh, Galilee. Right? He's just going to start going up into the north part of the country. And as, his, as he was on his way there, he stops in this town, Cana, where we know and we read that Jesus performed this first miracle of his, turning water into wine, and Jesus' mother was there. And some of these five guys were with him along this journey. And so turn now in your Bibles to Luke chapter 4. Verse 14, we read that news was spreading about Jesus all over the place. He, his notoriety was just growing we read in verse 16 of Luke chapter 4 that he went to Nazareth. Jesus went to Nazareth 
where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. Now remember, we're looking at how Jesus went about forming the spiritual family. Now why did he go to Nazareth? His family was there, right? This is where he was brought up. His family was there. Now I want to pause for a moment and talk about family. What is family? If we were able and had the time to give every person a mic here, we would probably have as many different definitions of family as people are in this room. (laughs) There's so many different definitions of family. But our general predominant view of family in North America is mom, dad, kids. Right? A nuclear, biological family. Mom, dad, kids, single family dwelling. But when we look at Scripture, when we look at the Bible... What we see is a radically different definition of family than what we are used to. And really a definition of family that that exists in most the rest of the world, the North America and Europe. In the Bible, family meant mom, dad, kids, possibly grandkids, possibly grandparents, aunts, uncles, brothers, sisters, extended family, business partners, friends. That was the definition of family. And more than likely, All of these people living in close proximity to one another and possibly even in the same sort of compound in multiple family dwellings. That was the definition of family, far broader than the nuclear family. Quite some time ago, I was around a table with a guy named James Houston who founded Regent College in Vancouver area. A few of us were gathered around the table with him and and our conversation was around community. And our conversation moved to how our culture has such a focus on the individual. Our culture has just become so individualistic and focused on the individual alone, apart from community. And as we were dialoguing, James said, you know what? He said, in my opinion, the invention of the mirror has led us to be much more focused on ourselves." And when you think about it, that's a pretty good, pretty good idea. The fact that we are all, all able, and mostly women, carry little mirrors in their, in their purses. Maybe some men carry mirrors in their pockets. And, but we've got a mirror in almost every room of the house, right? With the invention of the mirror, we could finally see ourselves and admire ourselves and how beautiful and handsome we are and how, you know, we want to comb our hair and shave and put makeup on and dress and, and really how we want to present ourselves to people around us. And when we look in the mirror, we see us. And we start to think, well boy, you know what? This world is all about me, myself, and I. And it's changed how we view ourselves, the invention of the mirror. Moved us to be far more individualistic, moving from a concept of me rather than we in community. James went on to say, he said, you know what? In my opinion as well, the stove, the invention of the stove had a massive impact on society and how we operate as families and extended families. And we think about it, it's true. Back in the day, maybe people gathered with a common cooking area, but with the stove, electric and gas stove, being piped right into our homes. I mean, we can cook our meals alone as a nuclear family. We can buy our groceries, prepare meals alone, eat alone, go to work alone, spend time with our co-workers, come back, be alone, and watch Netflix forever. Right? So maybe, you see, there's cultural influences in our lives that push us to be so focused and isolated and segregated and separated from really how we see that Jesus lived his life in Scripture. 
Perhaps we need to resist some of these cultural forces we have because if we are honest with ourselves, our relationships have kind of become really weak and fragile. Perhaps Jesus' example offers us another way to live as part of a spiritual family. So Jesus arrives in Nazareth to be with his family, which included Mary, his mother. We don't know where Joseph is at this point. Um, perhaps James, Jesus' brother, lived in that same area and, and other people that were a part of Jesus' family business, right? What was Jesus' family business? Someone shout it out. Carpenter, builders, right? Jesus' family were contractors. They built stuff, built stuff possibly out of wood, but perhaps as well out of stone because that stone was so common in that area of Nazareth and on this hillside that this town was built. So that was Jesus' family business. And everybody that was a part of Jesus' family helped participate in the family business. They were builders. And the reason that we see people living in these larger extended families in Jesus' day and age was for two reasons, protection and provision. Protection is a way to help one another, assist one another, defend one another, come and support one another, and providing safety and security for the whole family. Protection. Provision in the sense that everybody pitched in to the family business, and the family business provided and supported the needs, the real tangible needs of the whole family. So Jesus went back to Nazareth to be with his family. He found some friends. Now he was looking for family. On the Sabbath, Jesus' family went to the synagogue. And we see this now in Luke chapter 4, verse 18 and 19. Jesus' family goes to the synagogue. Jesus arrives there. He's handed this scroll from the, the book of Isaiah. And he reads Isaiah 61. And these are the verses right here in Luke chapter, or verses 18 and 19. Jesus says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then verse 20, then he, Jesus, rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began by saying to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. I mean, what an awesome text. Everybody in that synagogue, I mean, they were beaten down by the Roman Empire. They were taxed heavily. They were oppressed. I mean, if ever there was a group that wanted good news, that wanted to be set free, they wanted liberation, they wanted God's favor to be manifest in their life, it was this group. Everybody looked at Jesus and they marveled at him and they said, isn't this Joseph's son? We know this guy. They were beaming at his encouraging and life-giving words. And then Jesus goes on and makes some commentary on the text. And what he says is essentially this. Folks, this good news, it's not just for us. It's not just for the Jewish people. It's for everybody, including the Romans, all Gentiles, everybody. And when Jesus says this, the whole tone of the synagogue changed. People started to get agitated. They started to protest. And we read here in verse 28, 29, all the people in the synagogue were furious. They were furious when they heard this. They got up. They drove him out of the town. They took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him down the cliff. And this is what happened to people who were heretics. 
People who were just teaching wrong teaching, they would be taken to the edge of a cliff, their hands and feet would be tied, and they'd be pushed off a cliff. And if they didn't die as they hit the bottom, they would be stoned. That's what was happening here to Jesus. Now, we don't ask this question very often when we come to this text. Where was Jesus' family when all this was taking place? Where was Jesus' family? They were right there in the crowd. They were right there in the synagogue. And we don't know if maybe Mary shouted out, no, not my son, if maybe James, Jesus' brother, comes to his rescue and says, no, no, we're not going to kill him. We don't know what happens, but from all appearances, Jesus' own family, extended family, rejects him. He's excommunicated from the village. And the intent here is that they would kill him. That they would execute him. See, Jesus expected, in coming to Nazareth, that his family would be the home base for his ministry. Jesus expected that his family extended family, would not only operate the family business, but would help him, Jesus, as he carried out his heavenly father's business in rescuing the whole world and living out Isaiah 61, preaching the good news, setting people free, living out God's favor in the world, helping people enter into a relationship with God, his father. Jesus expected this. He anticipated this. He wanted this. But his family said, no, we're going to have none of that here. None of that here. So Jesus has found some friends. He comes to his family. His family rejects him. He has no family. He has no community. He's not go- he, he doesn't have any protection. He doesn't have any provision. So where does Jesus go? What does he do? Verse 31 tells us, Then Jesus went down to Capernaum, a town in Galilee, and on the Sabbath began to teach the people. Do you remember where the five guys are from? They're from Capernaum. Jesus goes to Capernaum. He met these five guys. They seem like friends. They like him. They want to be around him. They want to serve him. So he goes to Capernaum. And it's no surprise that Jesus goes to the synagogue. We read that when Jesus got there, there was someone possessed by an evil spirit. And Jesus releases this man from this evil spirit. When you think of what Jesus just read in Isaiah 61, that he was coming to preach this good news, release the oppressed, free captives, Jesus is living out Isaiah 61 right here in the following verses. Frees this man from this evil spirit. Jesus displays this spiritual authority that he has over the world. And then we read in verse 38, Jesus left the synagogue and went to the home of Simon Peter, Simon's house, one of the five guys. Now Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever, and they asked Jesus to help her. I have to note here that Simon's mother-in-law wasn't just visiting for a short period of time, for the weekend or a couple of weeks. She lived in Simon's home, as well as probably Simon's brother Andrew, one of the five guys along with other relatives and other business partners that were involved in Simon Peter's family business. Now, what was Simon Peter's family business? Fishing. He was a fisherman. The whole family was somehow involved in this fishing business. So remember, Jesus was looking for friends because friendship is the context for discipleship. But Jesus wasn't just looking for friends. He was looking for family, a spiritual 
family. And from this point forward in Jesus' life and ministry, Simon Peter's family became his family. Simon Peter's house became the home base for this kingdom operation. Simon's family became his family. Jesus found friends who liked him, who wanted to be around him, who wanted to serve him. And Jesus reciprocated all of this to Simon Peter, the other five guys, and their extended family. We read that Jesus healed Simon Peter's mother-in-law. And then the mother-in-law started to offer hospitality and prepared food for all of them to eat. So we know how Jesus went about forming this community this spiritual family, but why did Jesus operate this way? Why was this his strategy? I've said this a lot, but friendship is the context for discipleship. You see, a community, a spiritual family, is the context, is the best context for mission, for living out our Christian life in a way that will impact the world around us. Friends disciple one another, but a community of people, of like-minded people who agree and have this, this mission to influence the rest of the world for Jesus Christ, the best context for that is an extended family, a community, a spiritual family, not made up of just perhaps your biological family, but other people around you who are part of your community. Jesus told us what our mission is to Introduce people to Jesus. Help people find Jesus. Disciple them and help them obey everything that Jesus taught us. That's our mission. And this is so hard to do in just one, with one or two people or one or two or three friends. It's so difficult. But if we have, when we have a group of people around us supporting us, praying for us, challenging us, spurring us on, loaning stuff, lending stuff, funding stuff, offering their resources all as a larger community to impact the world for Christ, then change is possible. Imagine the redeeming spiritual impact on others that could be lived out this way if we were all a part of a spiritual family, a community of people together, living all out for Jesus. See, I want to contrast to you for a moment here. Jesus' family in Nazareth and Peter's family. Jesus' family in Nazareth, Jesus went to them and said, hey, look, this is what, this is my mission. This is what God's called me to do, and I want you guys to be a part of it, right? It's for the whole world. Jesus' family said, well, no, the gospel is just for us. It's only for us. Peter's family, on the other hand, look at verse 40 here in Luke chapter 4. Jesus is with Peter's family for the rest of that Sabbath day, when the sun was setting, the sun was setting, the Sabbath had come to an end. The people brought to Jesus all who had various kinds of sickness, and laying his hands on each one, he healed them. Jesus healed them in Simon Peter's home as a part of this whole family. If you read on, demons were cast out of people. People were set free. And this happened all night long. All night long. We read here in verse 42, it says, at daybreak. That's when Jesus said, I need a break. I need a break. And Jesus went to a solitary place all night long. Simon's family said, we're all in, Jesus. Jesus, whatever you came to this world to do, we are all in. Every one of us, we're all in with you. 
We will do what it takes to live out this good news, this gospel message to anyone who wants to know, who anyone who wants to hear. We're all in. You see, Simon Peter's family with Jesus, they didn't just say, instead of keeping the family cared for, protecting the family, keeping out anything that would cause discomfort or harm to the family. They didn't act that way. Instead of saying, you know what, this family is just for us and we're just only going to care for members of our family. Jesus turned this whole family upside down and all around and this family now says we exist for other people. We exist to teach other people the truth. We exist to heal other people. We exist to offer hospitality to other people. We exist to to bring the truth to others, to set others free, and we're going to welcome anybody into our family who needs a place to be family. Anybody who needs a family, come. And we read so often that this house was so packed full, no one could get in. (laughs) This is the way that this family operated. And it's only just a few verses later that Jesus has a conversation with Peter after a a fishing expedition. And Jesus says to Peter, Peter, don't be afraid. You've been catching fish. This has been your family business. Well, now your business is going to be catching people. And you're going to be bringing people into God's kingdom. This is your mission now. This is your business. This is your primary calling. See, Jesus knew that the only way that the gospel would spread would be through relationships. He needed a group of people that were not only going to be friends, but who were going to be family with him. He needed a group of people who would not keep the gospel just to themselves, but they would sacrifice their comfort. They would sacrifice their personal space. They would sacrifice the resources of their home. They would be generous with their income from their fishing business. They would offer their very lives, their talent, their abilities, their gifting. They would offer everything to pitch in to be a family that was on mission a spiritual family that would band together with Jesus and just spread this good news anywhere it could possibly go. And you see, church, the strategy that Jesus enacted hasn't changed. It hasn't changed one bit, really. The spreading of the gospel is still from person to person through friendships, through discipleship. That's the way the good news spreads. The gospel spreads from family unit to family unit, from neighborhood to neighborhood. This is the way that the good news spreads throughout the entire globe. Jesus' strategy still hasn't changed. And you know what is so amazing about this? (laughs) Is we get to be involved. Every single one of us get to be involved in this strategy. Being a part of a spiritual family that just shares this good news to everybody. We all get to be involved. So practically, what does this look like? I mean, if you're here this morning and you're not part of a group, well, like Wes said, after this service, just quickly go and meet one of our pastors and find out more about what we are trying to do as a church here with community. And if you are a part of a group, then then ask yourself, reflect on this message and look at the Gospels and say, Am I, is my community living out really how Jesus lived out? Spiritual family. 
and reflect on this question and perhaps make adjustments. And if you want to start forming a group, well, go, go talk to one of our pastors or talk to myself and we'll try and help you. If you're watching online and you are isolated, you're lonely, and you want to be a part of a group, well, email us, contact us. We'll try and help you. Some of you are already a part of a group, a men's group, a women's group, a, a, a youth a super group, or a young adult group. Well, is your group living out this, this way of being a spiritual family? Our dream is that we'll have more and more and more of these kinds of community groups all over our city, young and old meeting together, grandpas and grandchildren, married and singles, multi-ethnic. I mean, groups like this living all across our city in an Airdrie that will be passionate about reaching others, serving others, praying for others, healing others, teaching others, and exist not to keep this gospel message just for us, but for anyone else who would even think of listening. This is our dream for us as a church. You see, what we have, we need to share. We need to share what we have. And we need help. I can't live out my Christian life alone, and you can't either. That's the truth. We need help if we're going to live this way. We need people around us who will be part of our spiritual family. And when I say spiritual family, I'm not, I'm not talking about your biological family. Your biological family may be a part of your spiritual family, or they may not be at all. But we all need this spiritual family, this community of people around us helping us live out the gospel. The gospel is not just for us. We've experienced forgiveness. We've experienced peace with God. We have experienced the truth. We've experienced grace in our lives because of what Jesus Christ did for us. We've experienced community. And we need to share what we have. We come now to this communion meal that we're going to eat together where we celebrate the relationship that we have with God our Father through Jesus Christ. We celebrate what Jesus Christ has done for each of us, dying for us. Like John the Baptist says, look, the Lamb of God. Jesus Christ was sacrificed on a cross, paying the price for our sins so we could, we could live at peace with God. And so we could be a part of God's grand family, right? We are unified by one Lord, one Savior, one God, Father over all. We're all part of one large family. And so the night that Jesus, before Jesus was crucified, he was with his apostles, his disciples in an upper room. And they shared a, one last meal together before Jesus would make his way and then be crucified. In this upper room, Jesus took some bread that was just so common. And he said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. After supper, Jesus took a cup. He held it in his hands and he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Do this whenever you eat it in remembrance of me. And for so many years, followers of Jesus Christ have held a piece of bread in their hand that symbolizes Jesus' sacrifice, his broken body. And we hold a, a cup of juice in our hands that symbolizes Jesus' blood that was poured out for us, that was shed for us so that we could experience new life in him. 
So I want to invite our communion service to come. Come now, communion service, and just get ready to serve us. And what I'd like us to do is as you hold this bread and cup in your hands, I want to encourage you to pray this way. I want to encourage you to pray for someone that you know who isn't eating this meal with you yet. Imagine that we're all around one massive table. We're in rows here, but imagine we're all around one massive table. We all have a place setting. And on our plate is a little piece of bread and a cup. But there isn't a place setting next to you for someone that you know, someone that you love, someone that you work with, one of your relatives. Who do you know that isn't eating this meal with us yet? That isn't in this room? Now I want to encourage you to pray for that person. As you hold the bread and the cup in your hand, pray for that person. Ask God what he might want you to do so that you can show Jesus' love to them so that at some point in the future, they'll be in this room when we're eating this meal again. Pray for that person. And then move to praying, just speaking words of gratitude to Jesus Christ for what he has done for you and for me. Express your gratitude. Express your adoration. Express your love for him for how he died for you and I. Use these moments to do that. And then I'll come back and I'll lead us and we'll eat and we'll drink together. Christ's body was broken. His blood was poured out for you. And he did this so that our broken world could be mended. He did this so that our hearts would be made brand new. That we would be given a new heart, a soft heart. A heart that would love him, that would not be cold towards him. That's what the Bible speaks about when it says that we have become a new creation. In him, because of him. What you hold in your hands are evidence. They're evidence of how much God loves you. If you're here this morning and you don't think that God loves you or that he could love you, what you hold in your hand is evidence that God loves you. He sent his son to die for you because he loves you this much. He loves you so much. So as we eat and we drink now together, we do so remembering what Jesus did for us, and we do this with glad, grateful hearts. So let's eat and let's drink together. Father God, we're so grateful that you sent your son Jesus to live in this earth. We're so grateful that we can read how he lived his life, the example that he left for us, that we don't have to wonder how we ought to live. Help us to follow in his steps. We're so grateful, Jesus, that you were the lamb that was slain that your blood covers all of our sin. We're so grateful that we have no condemnation. We have no shame or we have no guilt because of what you did for us. Thank you that we can be the sons and the daughters of your heavenly Father. Thank you that we can be part of one big family, unified with you, Jesus, as our leader. And we love that we can live under your authority and your direction and your guidance and your correction as well. 
Thank you, Jesus, for what you did for us. And we leave this place with glad, grateful, joyous, happy hearts because of what you did. Thank you. We love you, Jesus. We adore you. We worship you. We praise you. You are our king. And now may the Lord bless you. May he keep you. May he be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you. May he guide you by his Holy Spirit this week in everything that you do and say. May you bring honor and glory to his name because of who he is. In the name of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. We hope this message has impacted you. We'd like to challenge you to take it one step further and get connected. For any questions or prayer, please visit our website at cschurch.ca. You can also like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter.